quiet while everybody's gathering in, finding your seats. Slowly but surely. All right, a couple of announcements just to remind everybody. We have our annual church picnic this coming Saturday. Uh, starts about 11.30 or so. Plan to get out there. There's some maps. I think there's some maps out there. Are there some maps out there, Alan? Um, you just picked one up? Okay, there are maps out there. Start about 11.30. People come out, bring food, whatever we supply. A lot of the, the meat. We'll have hamburgers and hot dogs and fish. And uh, all right, John, got some flounder and what else? Catfish. And so we got we have quite a spread out there and have a lot of fun. We'll probably play some games, volleyball, pickleball. If you don't know what pickleball is, you'll have to come out to find out. Isn't that right, Kathy? Pickleball is like badminton with a wiffle ball. So it's fun, but anybody can play from 8 to 80. How old are you, Bert? 84. That's past. That gives you two more years to work at it. Okay? So everybody has a great time. Bert gets out there, and he kicks everybody else around the volleyball court, too. So he's a does a great job. Also, we're planning a baptism. Don't have a date right now, but... If you're interested in getting baptized or you have a child or children that you believe are clearly saved and understand baptism, then uh, let me know. And uh, once we get two or three together, we'll, uh, and I think we're close to that or have that already, then we will set up a, uh, a baptism. We'll wait just a little bit longer. Maybe early June, the water will be warm enough. Last time we did one, we went over to Pine Valley and used their baptistry the week. It was a Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, and their water heater was broken. The water heater for for the baptistry was broken. So it wasn't the coldest baptism I've ever done, the coldest baptism I ever do, I ever did was at Camp Arete one summer up in the Rockies, and the daughter of a lifelong friend of mine and board member of Chafer Seminary came up to me at the as we got to this place and said, "Would you baptize me in this water that only a quarter of a mile up the stream had been ice?" That was. The coldest I've ever, I've ever done. So, anyway, that's our announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will, to make sure you're spiritually prepared, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. 
My Father, we are so thankful that we can come together this evening and to focus upon you and focus upon your word, to be reminded of what you have revealed to us, and that we can learn to walk with you and to serve you with our lives, to think as you would have us to think, and that we may be challenged to grow to spiritual maturity. And we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking tonight as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. Now, we studied this the last time. We went through the narrative itself, but it, it, it raises a question. And this is a question that uh, has to do with understanding God's will for our life, understanding how God guides and directs us. And what we see here in the first um, uh, three or four verses of of First Samuel 23 is that David is faced with a problem situation. Um, the Philistines are attacking a city, Tyla, and they're robbing the threshing floor. So this is in late spring. And so he realizes that this is a defenseless city, a defenseless town, and he needs to do something. But he takes the appropriate action, and that is he goes to the Lord in prayer. But it's more than simple prayer. He is seeking for God to tell him exactly what to do. We read that in verse 2. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to David. So what we note here in terms of divine guidance is that the Lord is giving direct revelation to David about how to about the decision that needs to be made. And this goes on even though the Lord has said this to David, David tells his men that this is what they're supposed to do and they're not so sure that God has really told him this and so David inquires of the Lord again in verse 4. And the Lord answered him verse 4. So this is showing a direct revelation and direct communication uh, between God and David. And so then we find out in verse 6 something else that's significant. It happened when um, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Kilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. Now, the ephod was the priestly garment that the high priest wore, and on, on either on or maybe in a pocket of the ephod, the high priest had something called the Urim and Thummim. We're not exactly sure exactly what they are. They were some sort of stone, probably that's the best uh, guess, and that they were either used in a form of casting lots to get a yes or no answer from God, or maybe they glowed. That's one uh, suggestion. We really don't know. But it was some method whereby God would indicate his specific guidance in a particular uh, particular situation. And then as we go through the rest of the, of the chapter, we see some other sort of interesting things that, that we ought to point out. First of all, uh, when we look at verse 7, 
And Saul was told that David had gone to Kilah, and so he said, God has delivered him unto my hand. Now, this is how the unbeliever or the pagan or the carnal believer uses God's will. They look at a positive, what they think is a positive circumstance, and they say, must be God's will. It's sort of like the... the, um, uh, alcoholic who wanders by a, a liquor store and sees a bottle outside and says, well, it must be God's will for me to have a drink. Circumstances are not the best way to determine what God wants you to do. There, There's positive and negative ways with circumstances, and I'll talk about that a little bit as we go as we go forward. Another aspect of divine guidance that we see here is in verse 14. Now, this relates to what I will call God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is also his secret will, his, as it were, his decreed will. We don't know what it is. Nobody knows what it is. Uh, Part of that sovereign will is God's providential will, and his permissive will is also his protective will. That's not something we can determine because it's not part of divine revelation. Verse 14, David has gone into the wilderness and he's hiding from Saul, and we see that Saul sought him every day. Saul's volition is locked into Davidic destruction. He wants to murder David, get him out of the way to preserve his dynasty. But see, just because people want to do something or people have the ability to do something doesn't mean that God is going to allow them to do something. So God is not giving Saul permission to or allowing Saul to kill David. In fact, God is protecting David, but Saul doesn't know that. This is not something overt. This is this. It can only be determined by observing the after effects in terms of what God actually allowed in terms of human history. So this is what I want to talk about tonight to go back and take a look at this important doctrine of divine guidance. There's been a lot of confusion in the minds of many people about divine guidance, how to know God's will in your life, how does God uh, direct believers, and what does he do in, and how does he direct believers? And so my position is that God directs believers in this church age only through his word, period. Not any other way. That's the only way to know God's will is through his word. Anything that violates his words, not God's will. Anything that conforms in obedience to God's word is his will. That's it. It's really simple for most believers. Am I walking in obedience to God by learning and studying his word? Then anything I decide, as long as it doesn't get me out of fellowship... As long as it's not a sin, as long as it doesn't violate some mandate or prohibition in the Scripture, is God's, it's God's will. If he has something else for us to do, he will make it clear. So, 
you've heard it said. This is what I'm going to describe here is what has been typically taught uh, by many, many people. Uh, many great Bible teachers have taken some of these views, and they have taught this, and it's led to great confusion. Now, if you're over the age of probably 40, you're not as concerned about these questions of divine guidance as you are if you're younger. The older we get, the fewer options that we have and the fewer major decisions that we have to make. But when you're young, when you're 15 or 17 or 22 or 28, the whole your whole life is in front of you, and you know that every decision you make will have tremendous lifelong consequences, whether you go to this university or that university, whether you go to university at all, whether you go to a trade school, whether you go in the military before school or after school, whether you date this person or that person, whether you marry this person or that person, whether you marry now or wait two or three years, uh, what kind of major you have in school, what sort of career you will pursue, uh, whether you will go on to graduate school. All of these are just part of the kinds of questions that shape and determine a person's life. By the time you get past your 20s or 30s or early 40s, you've made all of these decisions, and now you have to live with them for better or for worse, as it were. But the confusion comes, I found, in my experience, I remember not just around the corner from my house when I was 22 years old, there was a very strong Bible church at that time, and uh, one night I went to a Bible study there that was taught by the assistant pastor, and the Bible study class was all people who were in the college and career class, so they were all 20-somethings, and there was a, a guest speaker that night, and he taught about how to know God's will from Jonah. And I was more confused at the end of that Bible class than I was at the beginning. Jonah knew God's will because God told him specifically what he wanted him to do. Jonah's problem was he didn't like what God told him to do. And so he wanted to go in the complete opposite direction rather than go give the gospel to the people in Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was the sworn enemy of um, of Israel. That would be today like saying, you're going to go to the headquarters of ISIS and you're going to walk through the streets preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, if they repent, then I will extend their life. If they do not turn to me, then that's the message that if you don't turn to me, I'll destroy you. It'd be that same kind of thing. Now, if you're a red-blooded American patriot, which most of you are, you can sense that this would put you on the horns of a dilemma because you would be taking the gospel to what you perceive to be the enemy. But you work for God and not for the federal government. I don't care who signs your paycheck. We all work for the Lord as believers. We're ambassadors for him. And that was Jonah's position. He was called by God to take the message to the enemy, and he didn't want to do it. So he hopped a ship to Tarshish, which is Spain, going 
west in the Mediterranean instead of the other way. And I have no idea what else he said in that message. It just confused me. But you have one other example in the scripture that is often used to teach how to know the will of God, and that's from the story of Gideon. Now, if you don't quite remember the story of Gideon off the top of your head, Gideon was chosen by God to be a judge or a deliverer of Israel as they came under military uh, assault, invasion, by a coalition of Arab tribes under the Midianites. And they were oppressed. They would come in just like in the uh, situation here. And they would come in during harvest time, and just as all of the uh, grain was harvested, they would scoop it all up and leave just enough that to leave the Israelites on survival rations and leave. And so the angel of the Lord, who is the uh, theophany in the Old Testament, that is the second person of the Trinity, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. And Gideon recognized that this was God because he is going to uh, offer a burnt offering to the angel of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord says, God has chosen you to deliver Israel from the Midianites. And Gideon goes, hmm. Now what's going on with the subtext in the alternate reading in a Greek recension of the ancient Hebrew says that in Gideon's mind, he was thinking, how do I get out of this? But that's not in the text. How we know he's thinking that actually, I'm being a little facetious, how he actually knows that, we know that he was thinking that is he says, well, I want to make sure this is what you want me to do. It's the same kind of thing as Jonah. Now, a lot of people I've heard I don't know how many messages, the way you know God's will is you do what Gideon did. You develop some sort of situation, circumstance, or test, and if God um, answers it a certain way, then you know that that confirms that God wants you to make a certain choice. And so that's what Gideon does, is he takes a piece of fleece, uh, sheep's fleece, sheepskin, puts it out, and he says, okay, Lord, here, if, if you really want me to defeat the, the Midianites, what I want you to do is in the morning when I wake up, there will be dew all around the fleece, but the fleece will be dry. Now, the only way that would work naturally is if there was a tree over the fleece. Anybody who's been a camper knows that if you're camping out in the mountains or somewhere where there's a heavy dew in the morning, you try to put your clothes and your gear under a tree because the dew will form on the tree and not on your on your gear. So he just puts the fleece out in the open, got, gets up in the morning, and the fleece is dry and everything else is wet, and he goes, well, wait a minute. That means he wants me to do it. I've got to come up with something even more difficult because... Gideon wasn't trying to find out what God wanted him to do. He was trying to avoid doing what God clearly told him to do. So this isn't an episode teaching how to know God's will. It's really there to teach how to avoid doing what God wants you to do. And so his second test was to put the fleece out there and say, okay, God, if you really want me to do that, the fleece will be wet and everything else will be dry. 
Well, the next morning he got up, and the fleece was wet, and everything else was dry. So now he had no, no choice. He boxed himself in, and he was going to have to do what God told him to do. The way Gideon knew what God wanted him to do wasn't, didn't have anything to do with the fleece. It had to do with the fact that God himself stood in front of him and said, I want you to raise an army and defeat the Midianites. And Gideon was saying, how do I get out of this? How do I avoid this? How do I get out of this? So from this kind of teaching, develop the idea that God has one and only one specific thing he wants you to do on any given day at any given time in your life. He has one shot at this. So I've summarized it this way. You've heard it said that God has a perfect will for every decision in our lives. God has a perfect will. And therefore, we should live in the center of God's will. You want to live right smack dab on top of the center of God's will. And that God will reveal to you precisely what that will is. Now, I agree with that. God is going to tell you precisely what his will is, but not in the way they're thinking about it. God's not going to play guessing games, and he hasn't. He's told us what his will is, and it's in these 66 books. It's not out there in some circumstance or situation. And fourth, they will teach that one of the keys to discerning this will is an inner state of peace or tranquility, often quoting Philippians chapter 4, uh, 5 or 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Dear God, please let me know what to do in this decision. And the peace of God, uh, which goes beyond all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So the way you know it's really what God wants you to do is you will have peace and tranquility as a result of that. Except that's not what that verse is teaching. That's not what the Bible says anywhere. So what I'm saying is that this is not biblical at all. It, it may be interesting theology, but it's bad exegesis. It is actually a form of mysticism that I'm going to look inside of me to come up with an idea of what God wants me to do based upon how I feel. So, that's to introduce the doctrine of the will of God. And I thought this morning, I said, well, there's five basic things that you need to know about divine guidance to start off with. First of all, God has clearly revealed his will to us. We don't need to guess. I think that's really important. That gives people confidence. God has revealed his will to us. You don't have to get up in the morning and go, I wonder what God wants me to do today. Well, I don't have a fleece, but I got, I got a bath mat. I'll put that out and see if there's fleece and see if there's dew on it in the morning. And maybe it's something else. But I, I know of people who've done this. Sometimes there's immature and they've just heard faulty teaching and they'll say something like, well... If God wants me to do this, then when I get to this traffic light, it'll be green instead of red, or something like that. Some of you may have done something like that. We've all done silly things. But God makes it very clear that, that what his will for us is. Think about Adam and Eve. He creates them. He puts them in the garden. And what did he tell them? He said, first of all, I provided everything for you. We don't know how many varieties of trees there were in the garden. You had 
uh, nut trees and you had fruit trees and all this food. He said, I've given you everything except one thing, guess. Guess what I don't want you to do. Is that what he said? No. He made it real clear what they could do and he made it very clear what they were not to do. They were not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There wasn't any guesswork involved. They didn't have to get out their their dice and cast lots. They didn't have to do anything related to uh, guessing. God wants you to know. And not only that, but he created you so that you could know. God is communicating on a certain wavelength and frequency, and he created us with brains that had a receptor for that wavelength and frequency. So God wants us to know he's not playing games with us. Second thing we need to know is that God's will is communicated differently in different dispensations. A dispensation is... uh, a dispensation describes how God administers human history in different times and eras. It, in and of itself, the word just emphasizes management or administration, as we've studied, but that takes place within a certain time frame. And things were different in the Garden of Eden. God came and physically spent time. He walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden. That was very different from the situation after that. They're kicked out of the garden. They could come to the garden and get divine information, I believe, but but it wasn't the same. Then after the flood, it's it's different. And in the Old Testament period, you had people who were given uh, gifts of prophecy, and a prophet was somebody who was able to receive, give, God gave them divine revelation, and they then told people what that divine revelation was. God was still speaking directly to people because they didn't have a written word. They didn't have scriptures. So they were relying upon uh, prophets to communicate to them. Some of the prophets, like Moses, wrote things down, and then it was a responsibility of the priests to teach them what had been written down. So now they had both written revelation, which was usually referred to as the law or the Torah, which was instruction. You have whole psalms like Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 that extolled the virtues of God's law, that that directs us. And happy is the man, blessed is the man who obeys uh, obeys the law. But in the church age that we're living in, r- divine revelation has ceased because uh, we are to live on the basis of what has been revealed. And 1 Corinthians 13.8 talks about, in all of, uh, the latter part of 1 Corinthians 13.8 talks about two revelatory gifts, knowledge and prophecy, but it says they're partial, they're incomplete. But when that which is complete, that is the perfect, comes, well, if the partial fits the category of a revelatory gift and the that which completes it is talked about, that must be something that completes an something incomplete. So it's got to be apples and apples. 
So if the incomplete is revelation, then that which completes it is revelation. And so when the canon was completed, that ends the need for special divine revelation. So God isn't answering these kinds of questions. David, David was a prophet, and the New Testament calls him a prophet. Now, he didn't have the office of prophet. He had the office of king, but he had the gift of being a prophet. So God spoke directly to him, and that could be how God directed him in the first part of chapter 23. Also, he could receive uh, divine communication through the high priest in the Urim and Thummim and, and other vehicles. That was, but that didn't happen for every believer in the Old Testament. That just happened to with the king and with other leaders of the Jewish theocracy. There were um, there were men in the Old Testament who were. Uh, given an endowment of the Holy Spirit, a temporary provision of the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't anything like what we have in the New Testament. It was restricted, by my count, to no more than 100 people in the Old Testament experienced any kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit. And they were not always good, godly, uh, mature men. You have Jephthah, Samson, even Gideon. Uh, the Holy Spirit came upon these men in the era of the judges, and they they delivered Israel at critical times, but then they would fall into great sin. In fact, when we studied, and we have studied Samuel many times, I mean Samson, Samson never is reported in Judges to have done anything right, whereas the earliest judge, Othniel, nothing negative is said about him. So you see this, this is to depict this deterioration during the period of the judges, going from the first judge who does everything right to the last judge who doesn't do anything right. And he is, uh, he just completely ignores uh, God's God's will and God's communication. But the Holy Spirit strengthened them, not so they'd be spiritually mature, but to give them the military or leadership capability to defeat the enemy of Israel. That was the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So you see that that these roles like prophecy, those were limited to give divine revelation and mostly to the leaders of the theocracy, not to the everyday believer in the Old Testament. Third thing we know about God's will is that God's foremost will is for every human being to believe in Jesus and be saved. Jesus isn't going around saying eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Okay, you're out. He is this this idea of a Calvinist selection process where God chooses one and not the other is not found in the Bible. In fact, what we find is that word that's translated election is also translated choice many times. And what we have seen is that those who are choice are choice because they possess the righteousness that is given them at salvation. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he becomes choice. And that means he is someone who has a quality of excellence about him that is not something he, he earned. So God's will is for every human being to believe, and this is what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men 
to be saved. You've got to watch that word all. It doesn't mean some. He desires all men to be saved. That's why this is often referred to as unlimited atonement. Christ died for all. He desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. See, God wants you to know. God doesn't want you to be in ignorance or to guess. He wants you to know the truth. So God's foremost will is for every human being to believe in Jesus as their Savior, the one who died on the cross for their sins, and to be saved. John 6.40 says this, And this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus is speaking, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus is saying, this is God's will, is for everyone who believes in me will have everlasting life. That's God's will. But God's will doesn't stop with our salvation, our justification. Fourth thing is that God's second broad category of of will is for every believer to grow spiritually. A lot of people say, what does God want me to do? Well, first, he wants you to be saved. Are you saved? Secondly, he wants you to grow spiritually. Are you growing spiritually? Are you studying the word of God daily? Are you uh, maturing? Are you walking by the spirit? Are you learning the word? And it takes time to grow spiritually, not decades. When Paul reprimanded the Corinthians. I remember years ago, probably about 15, 20 years ago, some, somebody commented to me, said, you know, I've been studying doctrine for 30, 35 years. I don't, I don't know if I'll ever become mature. I think I really upset her because I said, well, that's a sign of carnality. Paul told the Corinthians after three years that you should be mature by now. Hmm. I think some people think the idea that unless I know as much as my pastor, I'll be mature. I just hope some of you are applying more than me. Some of you may never not may never know as much as I do. That's just academics. But the issue of maturity is applying what you know. And there are a lot of people who know a lot and they just don't apply anything. Maturity comes from the application of doctrine, not from the knowledge of doctrine. So here we learn that God's uh, second will is for every believer to grow spiritually. In 1 John 2, 17, John writes, And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And that word abide doesn't mean that he's saved and he's going to have eternal life forever and ever. The word abide is it's defined by Jesus in John 15 and in subsequent passages and in the, and in the first epistle of John means to be, to walk. It's, it's, it's uh, synonymous with walking by the spirit, being in fellowship, uh, being, um, abiding in Christ. All of these terms, it's relational. It has to do with the believer's close proximity, his relationship with the Lord. It's not phase two, excuse me, phase one, it's phase two. It is not justification, it is sanctification. Second important verse is Romans 12, 2. I think more and more, these two verses, the first verse is um, 1 John two seventeen. the second verse is Romans 12, 2. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your thinking. Not the renewing of your emotions, not the renewing of your checkbook, not the renewing of your house, uh, whatever it may be, not the renewing of your your whole uh, psychological outlook. It is the renewing of your thinking. In other words, don't think like the world thinks. Don't think as an unbeliever. Uh, think like a believer. Think biblically. Think in terms of what the Scripture says. So we're not to be pressed into the mold of the zeitgeist, the spirit of our age, the popular views that dominate uh, the culture, but we're to be transformed by renewing our thinking. That only comes by studying the Word and also by having a uh, student of the word, a pastor who feeds the sheep, equips the saints to do the work of the ministry. And as we grow, our life demonstrates that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. So that our life becomes a testimony. And that's only the result of having studied and applied the word. Another great verse that I like that I didn't put a slide up here for is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That is how you're interpreting your circumstances and what your uh, friend tells you to do and what your uh, other friend or neighbor tells you to do. But trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what will he do? He'll lead you down a cul-de-sac. No? That's how a lot of people think about it. He will he will lead you in a guessing game. No, he will direct your paths. You may not be aware that he's directing your paths. He may be directing your paths covertly rather than overtly. Most people, when they think of divine guidance, they think that that God's going to put big neon sign up here with flashing lights and uh, and sound and everything to indicate this is what I want you to do. And the opposite is true. God wants you to depend on him, to trust him, to take his word, think it through, apply it to the situation. And a prayer that I've often prayed is, Lord, don't let me do something really stupid. Don't let me get in a lot of trouble. Don't let me trip myself up, because I can do that very easily. And it's amazing how many times I have been on the verge of doing something, and God has said, I know you really want to do the right thing. This isn't it, and slams the door. Uh, Sometimes he didn't do that because he had another lesson for me to learn. But if we're trusting the Lord, he leads us and guides us. And another thing, just as a sub-point there, if you really work through a decision-making process, that involves a lot of prayer, that involves thinking through the issues biblically and evaluating them. In some cases, if you're a young Christian, not a mature Christian, they're complicated issues, going to uh, a mature believer, a pastor, leader in the church, someone who's older and has more experience, and you go to them and ask them for some guidance. And after you do all of these things, you say, okay, this this appears to be the best choice. And you make that choice. 
and you take that job or you go to that school or you marry that person. We'll talk about marriage and God's will in a little bit. You And, and one of those things happens. And then three years, four years, five years, 20 years, 30 years later, oh, it just blows up in your face. And what, how, how do most people respond? Well, that's God's fault. You know, why do people blame God for what other people do? But that's what happens a lot. People blame God. It's God's fault when other when people, sinful people, have made bad decisions, and that's what causes the explosion. Sometimes it's God's will for us to make a certain choice of action, and we end up being crucified on a cross, or we end up getting beaten three or four times with uh, with uh, whips or with rods as the apostle Paul was or you get shipwrecked the end does not tell you whether or not it was God's will God's will for uh, uh, Peter at the end of, of uh, the gospel of John uh, the Lord tells Peter that when he is old his hands will be bound and he will be taken where he doesn't want to go and Peter's like the rest of us. He says, well, what about him? And he points to John. Because most of us are saying, well, why don't I have your, his plan for my life instead of your plan for my life? And Jesus says, it's none of your business. I have a plan for John, and it's different from my plan for you. And this is what's going to happen to you. So when bad things happen, that doesn't mean that you made you misread God's signs you made a mistake. You didn't uh, properly get in touch with your deep feelings, and somehow you were led astray. Many times in my life, I have gone through the process. God has, uh, I believe, shaped things. As I look back, four or five really critical decisions that I made in my life, I don't know that I could that there ever was another option other than the one the Lord left me. That's another thing. God guides you. He limits those options. Maybe I wanted to do A, B, or C, and I tried, and it just never worked, and I ended up doing what I had to do. So <clears throat> we're to prove what God's will is except, uh, uh, that is good and perfect and acceptable. Now, I want you to look at the, if you're in your Bible, you should be looking at Romans 12 too, but I also want you to look at the verse that comes up right before it in Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1, Paul is saying, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, there's a lot of ways in which that's been mishandled over the years, but what he is saying is he uses a word in the Greek paristemi, which means to put yourself under the authority of someone or at the disposal of someone. You're basically saying, I'm here to serve you whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do it. That's what it means to present your bodies a living sacrifice. You're going to be alive. It's, you're not giving up. You are going to serve the Lord. And so that's the, the precursor. And it's a daily decision. It's not a one-shot decision. There are many... Uh, Bible teachers in the old uh, Keswick movement who said this is in the aorist tense. 
And that's a one-time event, so you have to walk the aisle. You have to commit your life to Jesus one time, once for all action. And that's not the significance of the grammar at all. It's an ongoing decision that has to be made, not just once a day, but maybe 20 times a day, that you're going to serve the Lord. Now, that same verb is used three times. It's interesting. It's only used three other times in before Romans 12.1 in Romans. And that is in a spiritual life passage in Romans 6.13. And there we're told this. This is God's will. God's will, Romans 12.1, is that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. God's will in Romans 12.2 is not to be conformed to the world. God's will is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So if you want to know what God's will for your life is, Number one, have you presented your life to serve the Lord? Number two, are you in the daily ongoing process of not being conformed to the world? And number three, are you in the regular process of having your thinking transformed by the renewing of your mind? That's foundational to knowing God's will in your life. Romans 6.13, we have three other, 6.13, 6.16, and 6.19, all related to this same verb, paristomy, in terms of presenting your members. Don't present your members, that's your body. Don't present your bodies or your life as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Don't serve sin. You have a choice. You can either choose to follow your sin nature or walk by the Spirit. Don't keep yielding to sin nature. That was a term that was used uh, a, uh, a couple of generations ago in talking about the spiritual life is you needed to yield. And what that meant was to present your bodies. That was an old English word that was used to uh, translate this verb. We're to present or put ourselves not at the disposal of our sin nature, but at the disposal of God. Verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? See, we're born slaves to the sin nature. But once we're saved, we are no longer a slave to the sin nature. That tyranny is broken. That's Romans 6, 1 through 12. Now we are, uh, if we present ourselves to sin, then we are making ourselves slaves. We're going back and we're putting the shackles back on. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death. Now, that's not eternal death. That's not physical death. That is a carnal, what we sometimes call carnal death or temporal death. In other words, it's a believer who has been born again to a new life. He is a new creature in Christ, but he's living like he's spiritually dead. He's living like an unbeliever because he's chosen to walk according to the sin nature, not according to the Holy Spirit. So you present yourselves as a slave to either sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Now, that's not justification righteousness. That's experiential righteousness. And then in verse 19, Paul says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. See, he recognizes that we're all just rotten sinners, and we yield to sin so easily, every one of us. 
That's why God deals with us in grace and why we need to deal with each other in grace because of the weakness of our flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for sanctification. That's a better term than holiness, for spiritual growth. That's how I would uh, translate. That's the significance of that. And then 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and forever. It's God's will for you to spiritually grow. And by grace and by the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So one, you need to have humility to follow what the Lord says to do. And number two, you need to grow in knowledge. Guess what? You can never learn enough about the Bible to exhaust it. You can come and listen to good Bible teaching, hear other churches seven nights a week for the rest of your life. You can give up your work and listen to really excellent Bible teaching on the Internet eight hours a day. You'll never get there. I'll never get there. I'm amazed at how, you know, at some point in our lives, the rate of forgetting exceeds the rate of learning. We all know that. But up to that point, it's amazing how many things we we continue to learn. Every time I go back, this last week when I was in, um, when I went to Tucson, and we're, we got the audio files up. Okay, the audio files are up. You can go back and listen to that. I taught at Tucson Bible Church. I taught the Psalms that I taught here. I taught Psalm um, 56 and Psalm 34. And you'll listen to those and say, wow, he he didn't say that the first time. That's because I learned some more things. And there's different application and understanding of different things, and that's what happens. I, I could go back and, what, I spent three and a half, four years teaching through Revelation. I could go back and teach it again. After I finish most books, that's when I think maybe I'm ready to start teaching it. I think I have a handle on it. Okay, we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us, we don't have enough knowledge of, about God because we only know about God and to have a relationship to abide with him through his word. It's not through some other means. I can't go outside and sit down and take God to coffee. I can only learn about him by studying the word. That's what God's will is to study the word. Okay, fifth, the Christian life is designed to give evidence that God's will is perfect. Well, the only way we can know that is to do what God says to do, okay? Romans 12, 2, the purpose of the Christian life, renewing your mind, is to prove or to demonstrate that God's will is good and acceptable and complete. Our lives give evidence of that. Okay, those are the five things that we need to know about divine guidance. Then we have some misconceptions about God's will. Some of these misconceptions are true for a lot of different Christians. There's so much confusion about this, and there's been some confused teaching about this. I've started off talking about what you may have heard, living in the center of God's will. 
God's will here is described as a by this circle. Anything within that circle is might be treated as generally okay. You're not really blowing it. You're not going to end up losing all your rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. But if you really, really, really want to have happiness in this life, then you've got to find that atom in the center of God's will and sit on that and never vary. And that's just as legalistic as it can be. But it's not presented that way, and it often has certain negative implications. Okay, so this is a teaching I'm trying to correct. It's, I still hear it showing up in some people's minds. And this is the idea that God has this specific will, and, um, and we have to find it. For my situation, well, I've looked all through the Bible, and I don't find anything that is directly addressing my situation. Indirectly, maybe, but nothing directly. What time should I get up in the morning? I don't find anything in the Bible that tells me that. Should I put on my ostrich boots or should I put on a pair of Crocs? Should I put on blue slacks or gray slacks or brown slacks? I mean, if we're going to follow this out to its logical conclusion, every single decision is either right in the center of God's will or it's not. That leads to some real uh, spiritual bondage. So... The idea there is that God has a specific will for how and what each believer uh, thinks. Now, the key word there is that word specific. Okay? God has a will, and that's what's described in the Scripture. And that is a broader than this pinpoint center of God's will mentality. So this is generally true. God does have a specific will for how you should think. You should think uh, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse verse uh, 7 says, Whatsoever is true, whatsoever is righteous, whatsoever is just, if there be any virtue, if there is any good report, think on these things. So that's it. God has that. Then secondly, God has a specific operational will for each believer. And he does. That's described the whole process of sanctification. That's the operational will of God. And he does have that. We are to, when we sin, we're to confess sin. We're to walk by means of the Spirit. We're supposed to present our bodies a living sacrifice. We're supposed to present our bodies to serve the Lord. and not. That is the operational will of God. It is more general than it is specific. It's not telling you what, what to wear tomorrow, what kind of truck to drive, what kind of car to drive. It's not giving you specifics that you need to go talk to this person instead of that person. You need to work for IBM instead of Intel. That's not the operational will of God. But those are the real-life decisions we often bring to this question. The third is that God always has a specific geographical will for every believer. Now, is that true or false? That's false. God may have a geographical will for you at times, and he has had a geographical will for me at times. When it was time for me to go to seminary, God's geographical will was to go to Dallas, Texas, because 
That's the only way I could go to classes at Dallas Theological Seminary as long as I was in North North Dallas. He made it clear through various means that that was going to happen. I enjoyed the first couple of years of my college career to the detriment of my GPA, and uh, I did a great job the second two years, but I didn't think that I had a snowball's chance in the lake of fire of getting into Dallas Seminary. At the time that I went to seminary, there, it was just they were taking the cream of the cream of the cream of the crop, and there was no way that was going to happen. And my mother kept saying, do it, apply, all they can do is say no. So through various uh, you know, circumstances as God led, it's really interesting, I had to take the uh, GRE. And that was the, the graduate record exam. And I just figured, well, I'm not going to do that hot. I've never done that hot on the SAT or uh, any of the other tests. But I was taking a graduate course in history at the time, and I was reading a book, and I'm reading a lot of big books, and somebody had told me that whenever you read a word you don't understand, circle it, look it up in the dictionary. So I was doing that, and I had a book, a couple of books I was reading. I had to look two or three words up on every page. Also, I was running an in-school suspension class in Channel View at Channel View High at the time. And um, so they were sending all the little truant, nasty little junior high kids to me, and they would be given assignments. And I would have to say, oh, golly, this is a geometry assignment. So I'd have to help them understand the geometry assignment or the algebra assignment or whatever it was. What God was doing was preparing me. And because I hadn't looked at math or some of the, the some of that vocabulary, I took on the vocabulary part of the GRE, I had looked, I swear, I had looked 98% of those words up in the previous month. That's a God thing. That has nothing to do with my IQ ability or anything else. And the same thing with some of the math and, and arithmetic functions. I had reviewed this in the previous two or three months just teaching these kids. And I did so well on it that, that it, I was a shoe-in to get into seminary. It didn't have anything to do with me. I know that. It was, it was the way God guided. He directed my paths. And so I got accepted. And I knew that if I got accepted at Dallas Seminary that, that snowballs would would uh, you know that it was going to freeze in hell and a lot of other things were going to take place because that would be, have to be a miraculous act of God. So, uh, But God doesn't always have a geographical will for you. I could have lived in Irving. I could have lived in Garland. I could have lived in Mesquite. I could have decided to live 100 miles away and commuted every day. God does not always have a specific geographical will for your life, but sometimes he might. And guess what? He's not going to let you miss it. He's going to drop. If you say, I'm going to go to University of Texas instead of Texas A&M, and God wants you to be an Aggie, something is going to happen, but you will not matriculate at the University of Texas. If you are trusting God, he will put you where he wants you to be. You can't miss it. Even if other people are conspiring to make you go in one direction, God wants you somewhere else, you're going to go where God wants you to go. So 
You don't have to search for God's geographical will. If you're trusting in him, what's the proverb say? He will direct your paths. You will be where he wants you to be, so you don't have to look for that. Then you have the idea that God always has a specific will for every decision. See, the key is specific will for every decision, that there's one and only one choice. And some of the perversions of this are the idea that there's only one right person for you to marry. Anybody else is is not even God's second best. That's not taught anywhere in the Bible. Anywhere. Then, on top of that, because, you know, the problem with that is people go, oh, and I've heard this, you have to. Uh, but this person I married... Nobody can live with them. You know, the one thing that I, I used to tell people, say, how can this person be my right wife or my right woman or my right man or whatever? And Because and, look at what they did. I said, have you ever thought about the fact that when you're living on your sin nature, they're probably asking the same question? Because two people living on their sin nature aren't right for anybody. Okay, but two people who are walking with the Lord can learn to love and adore each other because they're walking with the Lord. And that, and up until you get into America and some other areas of Western civilization in the late 19th and early 20th century, nobody picked their spouses out of love. They were arranged marriages. And in the Bible, they were arranged marriages. But... They learn to love the person that they marry. The idea of a right job or the idea of a right congregation or a right pastor, those I've never found those in the Bible anywhere. What I have found is that wherever you are, you're to be in part of a congregation, you're to study the Word. And that pastor can teach, can teach you at one level or another. In fact, if you think about it, if this, is a, if this were true then we couldn't have any seminaries. Because if you, go, if you went to Dallas Seminary, let's say in the good old days under Dr. Chafer, if you went to Dallas Seminary and you had eight professors, and those times every one of those eight professors were pastors. So if this idea of one right pastor were true, then anybody who went to seminary would be in some sort of spiritual perversion because he's listening to eight different pastors. How terrible. Well, that's not true. It's patently false. And it's not found in Scripture anywhere. It doesn't work in reality. So that's the introduction. Next time we'll come back and look at the details on what the Scripture says about divine guidance and the will of God. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. Thank you for giving us the confidence that we can know your will. We just need to read your word and do what your word says. And as long as we're trusting you, learning your word, growing spiritually, you will direct our paths, and we don't have to worry about missing out on something or making some terribly disastrous decision because we're trusting you, and you have promised that you will guide and direct us and even when things might appear to be to have taken a wrong turn, we have confidence knowing that sometimes you have allowed that to teach us, to mature us, and to help us to grow. Father, we're, we pray that you might help us to understand the importance of uh, making ourselves 
uh, putting ourselves at your disposal to serve you, to walk with you, that that is our purpose and that we are called to that purpose. And if we grow to spiritual maturity, then the capacity to serve you will be uh, comparably greater. And we pray that you would challenge us to do so. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.